Hello, everybody. Today, we are going to discuss the 1989 Spike Lee film, Do the Right Thing, made on a budget of $6 million and uh, made over $37 million at the box office. Obviously, that's a big, big return. Has a 93% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of 9.1. Very high, very high correlation there. Um, I don't know if it actually won any awards, but this film was huge. It was definitely big. Uh, big time stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, it looks like it was nominated for Danny Aiello, Spike Lee. Yeah. I mean, it should have been up for Best Picture. It should have won Best Picture, and it did not get a nomination. And this was an older uh, Hollywood and, and Academy back then. Yeah. I mean, let's the fact that Danny Aiello is the only person recognized for their acting in this. I mean, he's great, and he deserves it, but. The one white guy? Uh, I'm sorry. I won't go down that path. But it's um, this film, this is actually the first time I've seen it in its entirety, start to finish. Um, so it was a it was a good film for me to watch. I really liked it. Um, it was really interesting. Like, I, we've talked about Spike Lee in the past, and I think uh, he really does his best when he is normally, for me, prior to this movie, I thought he did made his best films when he was just really making like Inside Man, like a, a fun film that he can like touch about things on. But when I've seen films like the Battle of the Miracle of Santa Anna, which to me, it's more like a racial film through a World War II prism, it just doesn't work for me as well. Uh, but this this was a film that's like about race. I really liked it. Like I, uh, I enjoyed this film, not only from a entertainment standpoint, but also from an entertainment standpoint, but also, like, there's an, there's artistic value as well. Definitely, yeah. I mean, it's it's his breakthrough movie without a doubt. He had done a, uh, I think he he done She's Got to Have It and School Days before this. You know, he kind of made some baby steps. But this is really one where he kind of explodes into the mainstream. Um, you know, the, the coupling with um, Public Enemy. I mean, they basically do the soundtrack for the movie for him, and, and White Power becomes a, a big mainstream song as well at this time. And it's just. Talk about having your finger on the pulse of like the culture and stuff. And, you know, this was really, you know, the, the you know, rap was becoming mainstream. Um, these topics were not really discussed in other movies. I mean, the movie that won Best Picture this year was Driving Miss Daisy, which also has racial themes, but it, and you know, ironically, just comically behind the times and compared to what Spike is talking about and everything. And I think Spike's movie much more culturally relevant than that movie ever will, will be. And could be, and, and uh, you know, also the combination of techniques he's using. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Bertolt Brecht, Jake. No, no. Oh, he's a uh, cousins of a uh, Buddy Brecht, right? <laughs> he was a uh, Bertolt. So, really quick, just to go into this, Bertolt Brecht was a famous German playwright, uh, kind of a, a mostly like a, a Marxist or neo-Marxist type person, but. He developed what was called epic theater, and he had this uh, technique called estrangement technique. And basically, the idea behind Brechtian plays was that you wanted to to distance the audience from the from uh, the characters and what was happening on stage, because instead of kind of getting lost in the story and the plot, you wanted to remind the audience that this was actually a show that you were watching, and you he, he wanted to push audiences into critically thinking about different. Um, Things. You know, for Brecht, it was more about like Marxism versus capitalism and, you know, Nazism versus, uh, you know, fascism versus other political things. So Brecht was much more politically motivated, but Spike takes those same techniques and he uses them towards racial theories, basically. 
And so, you know, things like uh, really intense music or having long narrations or using a chorus, you know, in this case, kind of the men on the, on the corner are kind of his chorus. He, you know, also, you know, that, that big musical interlude in the beginning where Rosie Perez is dancing to fight the power and stuff, it's like, it immediately does this estrangement effect for the viewer. And so instead of kind of getting lost in the movie, you're constantly thinking about the different points of views and arguments that are brought up throughout the movie. Also, you know, the, the whole thing with Smiley holding up the picture of Malcolm X and, and Martin Luther King, and that's kind of a primary, you know, state where it's like neither one of these people was wrong. It's just two different points of view. You know, Malcolm X was much more uh, nonviolent, and, and uh, you know, Malcolm X was kind of a, a proponent of self-defense. Um, and throughout the movie, there are things like that. And I think all the arguments that he brings forth are really interesting and were just like culturally relevant. You know, for some of my favorite scenes are just the stuff like, you know, the thing between bugging out and, and, and sales pizza where it's like, why don't, why don't you have black people on the wall? You know, all the black people here are spending money here. And he's like, this is my pizza place. I'm going to put what I want to put. And it's like, both of those guys are, you know, right. But they both have valid points of views. And it's just kind of every, you know, almost in every scene, there's kind of an argument brought forth. And I don't think Spike is saying one thing is right or one thing is wrong. It's more just about, I think he wants more cultural understanding between all of these groups. And so, but it's, you know, the way it's presented and the techniques, the techniques that he uses, um, I just think we're really, it's a really interesting move to kind of like use these kind of old Brechtian playwright techniques and bring it into like modern day theatrics. And also he does a lot of his own stuff here in, in, in as well. So it's just, just a really, really interesting movie still to this day. I think. It's, it's, it's very interesting, but it's, um, it was funny because as the movie goes on, you realize that bugging out and Sal really are coming from the same place. It's like, Sal's like, these are good people. They put money in our pocket. They put food on our table. Like, and it's, I love the scene where Sal's talking with Pino and he's basically like, this is like, we're part of this community. Like I've fed this community. These kids grew up on my food. I've seen these old, like, young kids grow old and old people grow older. And it's just, it's uh, he like, I've seen, it was, it was cool for me to see that, but it was funny. And I also think, I like how Mookie kind of sets up the tension and also for anyone who's been in New York on a hot day, it's oh, yeah. in the summer, like tensions run high. Like you get in that subway cart and like people are just ready to pop and it's like, it's, and the way he builds was really, was really impressive. And, um, but the thing with bugging out is it's funny. Like he, he is a bit of an agitator, but he's also like, at the same time, he's not wrong. Like at the same time though, he walked in, he was having a bad day. He's a, uh, He's a bit of a shit starter, but like he's not—he's not a bad guy. Like it's the same with Radio Raheem. Like I don't think Radio Raheem's a bad guy, but at the same time, you can't just walk into a business blasting a boombox and expect to get you know to get the service. You know, it's like you got to turn down your radio if you walk into a pizza place. You know, and it's like uh, I, I agree that you know also bugging out uh, Giancarlo Esposito. I don't know if you noticed, Jake. I mean. Goes on to have a crazy career much later in his life. It's, I, I, you almost forget that he's in this movie. Seth, so we were just talking about Do the Right Thing. Uh, I think we were just talking about Danny Aiello and, and some of the awards or, or snubs, lack of awards. Right, yeah. That, that actually, you know, the Danny Aiello character, I think it's a great performance. Um, it, uh, like, I think Spike Lee's first choice was going to be Robert De Niro. And I do think De Niro would have given this movie a little bit of a different feel. Uh, obviously, like, a little bit of a bigger presence in that spot. So, you know, I've always kind of wondered what the movie would have been like, you know, if De Niro had been in that role. But I actually, 
I like Ayala's performance. I, I think he comes across pretty well. I also I really like the John Turturro performance. He's actually pro- probably the most angry person in the movie and the most upset and the most racially kind of um, tilted person, I want to say. And, you know, like he really despises where he works and the setting he works and the people that, that are around him and stuff. And I love that scene where Spike kind of pulls him aside and he's like, you know, who's your favorite actor? And he's like, Eddie Murphy. And it's like, who's your favorite performer? And it's like, I know it's Prince. And like, you know, who's your favorite athlete? Mike Magic Johnson. And it's like, you realize all of your favorite people are black people. And then Turturro tries to do this whole thing. Well, I don't really see him as black people and they're kind of more than And It's like, no, man, like you have racial issues, dude. And like, you need to figure yourself. And it's like, I think his, like that performance and like the, the psychological makeup of that character is kind of the most interesting at, at times in the movie. It's funny you say that. I was, I found him very interesting. There was like a scene and now they're like, uh, the further I got away from the movie, the, the more I understand there is a scene where the dad where Sal is talking to Jade, Mookie's sister. And I thought it was a really well-directed scene because it did feel innocent. Yet at the same time, it was like, it was a little flirtatious, but it felt innocent. But there's this scene where you just like, they went up a close up on Pino's eyes and I didn't get it at the time. And I still don't fully get it, but I, I didn't get if it was, he like shares his father's maybe attraction to, um, her or if it's more so he's like just he is like disgusted by his by the attraction i actually thought there, there's like a little bit of jealousy there where he, where like he, he really treats her like this daughter that you know he's always loved and like kind of brought, you know helped bring her up and mm-hmm. fed her and all this stuff and i think his son is really kind of jealous of that relationship and then like his father doesn't treat him with that light hand you know they're treated with the heavy hand you know he's screaming at them all day long you know go go sweep the Go sweep the sidewalk is basically the first thing you hear Ayala say to Turturro at the beginning of the movie. And I just think there's some of that, too, where it's like, you know, how could you treat, you know, these black people so kindly and you treat me and my brother so harshly and you're so hard on us all the time. And there's just there's all these social dynamics happening in the movie like that, that it's like, again, no, no answer is given one way or the other, but it's just really interesting kind of filmmaking. I think. The thing I really loved was the dichotomy between him and his brother, because the brother Right. is and like they also it's interesting like pinocchio was talking about how much he reads and like he's like the the thing that got me was my takeaway was that pino granted i'm a white guy not that that makes me a, an expert on race but being surrounded by white guys uh my whole life it it's just the same thing whether it's like any type of racism or sexism it's someone's not happy with where they are and it's just putting off blame like pino's upset I, they never go into it like is pino upset that he's not black and not, like he's like he's not like michael jordan or michael jackson or is he upset that he's not living in westchester the upper west side or that they're not like a generation from the previous generation um but what, what really stood out to me with pino was how he wanted his brother to share his feelings and his brother wanted nothing to do with it. And that was the, when, when the movie ended, that was, I kept looking at Vito and it just made me sad. I kept thinking like, I wonder if Vito is going to be more like Pino now. And it's just where it comes to me, it's control. Vito has no control. Or Pino has no control in his life. He's under the thumb of his dad. He's not happy. His friends make fun of him. He's basically an adult man working the same job he's probably did as a, as a teenage boy. He's like dealing pizzas. Nothing wrong with that. Like that, as Sal said, like that's a, you're in that community. You're building that community. There's nothing wrong with that. At the same time, though, 
the Greeks, whole mythology is about this, the sons wanting to overthrow the dads. There's a ton of tension in any family. You add business to that. What's the outlet? He's not going to be mad at his dad, but you know, he can be mad at the black, the black people. And you know, do you know who you can make fun of in a group full of white guys? Not all the time, but like 1980s New York, I bet you could walk into any neighborhood, Italian, Irish, whatever. You you drop some black jokes, and they also play on that well. It's like the black people getting on the Koreans, the Koreans getting on the Puerto Rican. Like there's some more things like working in here, and um, I'm losing myself a bit. So I'm sorry. It's got montage too, where it's like all the epithets are being thrown out by all the different characters. Again, it's one of those distancing effects that that Spike is using, and it's like you know, (laughs) you hear Pino just dig into the black people, and then um. You hear like uh, the the black guys on the corner like getting upset at the Koreans. It's also something that uh, Spike evokes again in Twenty Fifth Hour. There's like a really similar montage where all those like epithets are being thrown out. So I've always thought that was interesting. And it's not like I you know I don't enjoy people <laughs> being angry at other races, but I do think it's interesting to just hear like all the hatred come out in a montage like that, and you kind of hear everyone's side, and it's just like, man, we really are upset with each other for the wrong reasons. <laughs> Isn't it, doesn't it sound, uh, the thing I like about it, and like I'm thinking about this a lot, because as you know, 25th Hour is one of my favorite movies. Like it's, yes. I that's one of my favorite scenes. And I've, I've thought about it a lot, because I think, for me, I think the reason that appeals to me, the scene they do in this one, and the, and the same thing they do in that, it's, I call it the racial facial, or the facial yeah. racial. They just go around and it's everyone unloading on each other. And when you hear it all laid out in a quick row, it's just so silly. Like it is so funny. Like when you're making fun of like they, and I'm saying silly and like, not the, again, I'm a white guy. I realize I I can make fun of it. And the 25th hour one might be a little bit better because they dig into a ton of the white stereotypes in New York city. I'm dealing with like, but the idea is that if you're in a room and you say like one stereotypical thing, it can be lost and it's like, Oh, that sounds true. But when you go around the room and you call out every group stereotypes, like the way I look at it is when they, whether it's in this or 25th hour, I've lived in New York, not in all these neighborhoods. So for me, I, I'm, much of what I know about these communities is the stereotype, but there are also the communities I am a part of, whether it's the Irish or the white or like that, whatever that is. And it's, um, I'm losing myself here and I definitely don't have the tact or skill to handle it well when it comes to racial but what i like about spike's approach it's the same thing as the south park approach and when you're bashing everyone when everyone's being bashed in the room i feel like it allows you to take a step back and it's like for me i guess it's a personal experience for me i take a step back and i'm like wow you look and everyone just picks out these like couple of things to hate about each other but like that's not what anyone cares like it's never about that like and if you hate everyone in the room then what like you don't you can't hate everyone in the room and they all hate you it just seems so like useless and that's the whole idea behind that technique like what you just said is like it makes me take a step back and that's what he's forcing the viewer to do is like when you get it all in a row like that it forces the viewer to step back and critically think about it instead of just like getting embedded into the story and losing yourself you're actually thinking about why are we like this and why do we say these things about each about each other and like what what can we you know like why why would we all do this and what can we do to change it and so it's that that whole technique is designed to do exactly what you're saying it's like it forces the viewer to distance and step back and think about it critically and that's really you know i think some older white people back in the 80s saw this movie especially some people in the academy 
and they didn't fully understand what he was doing. And it's like, he didn't really, they didn't realize that he's making people think about a race in a different way. And that's a really powerful thing when you think about it. Like, that's really why the medium of a film is a, like a, what I think is one of the best you know, artistic mediums to use because to actually change people's uh, ideas and views about culture and stuff, that's what Spike was trying to do. And it's like, you know, even if he just takes a small step and makes people think about it a little bit, it's like, at least you're using the medium in a, in a way that's like, a, you know, a positive for society. And it's just like, you know, the fact that he, you know, uh, again, I think this was like a, a big step for film in general, just to talk about these things in such an upfront manner and not do it subtly or under the surface or like, you know, a Hollywood, you know, feel or something like that to actually get it in your face. And like, let's talk about why black people are upset with Koreans opening stores in their neighborhoods. So like, let's talk about why like these Italian people might not be so happy, you know, feeding the bite. And it's just like to be that upfront about it and make people think about it that way. It's a, de- you know, it's a ballsy movie when you really like to, to have the balls to make that movie and not make it Hollywood. I mean, I know like a lot of the producers wanted Spike to have uh, the, the Mookie character and Sal kind of end up uh, coming, you know, like, like making up at the end, basically, and have it be a more happy ending. And the, the fact that he ends it with, you know, no, like Mookie's going to throw the trash can through the window and there's going to be a riot. And like, you know, it, it comes to a, it really comes to a head at the end of that movie. And it's not a Hollywood ending, you know, it's not a happy ending for this neighborhood. And so I just think, you know, the balls it took to make this movie were, were but uh, like all the risks paid off, honestly, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, especially with, again, this is the first time I've seen it. It's in full entirety and just with the full context of everything that's happened in the last 30 years, it's, it's the type of film that I, I can look back now. And to me, it's like genius. It, it almost, I'm not going to say predict the future because what it was more doing was just exposing the actual past to a new community being white people. So it's like, I sit here and say, oh, he predicted the future. He didn't, he was telling us what was going on then. And only now has like the media's eyes fully opened up to saying, whoa, like, yeah. I, I think we're dealing with it now. I think there's some juggling trying to find like that right thread, like of, uh, just like what, what is, what is racist? What is just old fashioned? Like what is, again, I, I always feel there's awkward talking about this. On the movie, you know, like there's some ageism stuff, you know, that, that scene where like the younger kids walk up to the mayor, that guy played by Ozzy Davis. And they're like, you know, he's like, you don't know what my life is. You know, why would you make fun of me and all this stuff? And then the kid's like, you know what? I don't know. Cause you're a drunk and I wouldn't be a drunk and I would take care of my kids. And it's like, again, that's a good point. Like, yeah, you didn't have to fall into alcoholism and, like, like your kids go hungry. Like, you could have taken care of them. At the same time, though, it's like, respect your elders. Like, don't be a dick to this guy. Like, he's not doing anything to you. And there's just, there's that tug and pull with, like, every scene almost where it's like, yeah, both sides have pretty good points there. He does that really well. And it was, like, the whole Demare scene. And it's funny. I I waffled a bit. Um one of the things I always used to think, well, especially when we were younger, was like it wasn't lost on me that a lot of the racists didn't just evaporate after the 1960s. And so, like, whenever I was talking to someone old, like even as a teenager, I was like, "You're probably pretty racist." Like, and like I would kind of use that as like uh, I, I always just kind of had like I thought I was better than older people. Whether that was that's mainly projection. I'm not better than anyone as the older I've gotten. Um, but I always used to hate it when. Respect your elders is the one thing, even as a kid. And I still now, like, when you're a kid, 
you're like, why do I need to respect you? What have you done to deserve my respect? But now that I'm getting older, I'm like, in my 30s, I want to respect my elders. Like, I will. But at the same time, if you're a teenager, like, I'm not going to be like, hey. I like the one, the, the scene that stuck out with me, I always call them the four peanuts. It's like, it was um, Steve Martin, the two other guys. I think one of them was named with Ahmad and then the girl. It's like the four of them are, they're like the pack yeah. running around and they're egging on the guy when he scuffs the Nikes. They're there at yeah, the pizza yeah. shop. They're actually part, part, like part of that group. Yeah. What I was thinking, they are at the center of all the action. They're like either, they're part of it. But the thing I was thinking of was when, I can't remember the actor. But they're always he, escalating things. Yeah, you're right. It's like they escalate that whole thing with, bugging out at the end in terms of like uh you know putting pictures on the wall yeah, well, they they're, they're the egging on sal and then he drops the end bomb and then they egg on then they egg on bugging out yeah. and it's like they're just but it's funny early on i was like they reminded me of uh i called them the peanut gallery they reminded me of our friends like rabble rousers like in the background and then as it went on i was like i even had a note i was like they're the most dangerous ones like they're causing this shit little did i know but the thing where i was going with this was when that italian guy's driving his car and they're playing with the water I don't care who you are. You roll in any neighborhood and you call out like if they're not looking at you, but you roll in and you say, don't get that shit in my car. Guess what's going in your car? I don't care. White neighborhood, black neighborhood, poor, rich, Irish. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. Spanish, like any you can't you can't you just can't challenge, especially as we know, those are the rabble rousers. Those were the four people who just do anything like that was trouble. Yeah, you can't call it out and then think you're not going to get it. I mean, come on now. Like, the guy was, I mean, he's asking for it. That's also like, you know, Spike Lee grew up in those neighborhoods and stuff like that happened, you know, all the time. You know, the rich white guy with the fancy car rolled through. He's getting the water on a hot day. I mean, it's just happening and they're all running away. I also, you know, the portrayal of the cops too, they kind of show up in that scene. I also think it's a really, I mean, Spike throughout his movies has done pretty good portrayals of New York city police, I think. And, uh, but again, you know, just the way those cops handle situations, it's never a de-escalation, you know, no. especially at the end of the movie, you know, the way that they handle radio Rahim, it's never a thing where they're keeping the peace. They, they actually escalate what's going on even further. And so, you know, that all portrayal of the cops, I think is really powerful too. And that was another thing where, again, it's, it's interesting. I wish I had seen it when I was younger because it's so interesting now seeing the film and that. And I would just, I guess I, could, I didn't have time to do the research, but I would love to read some New York Times articles. Just see what the critics thought about the way they depicted police. Um, I mean, they talked about this on the rewatchables. Like there, there was like a brief period where Bad Cops was like a fad in the 80s. And that was be, like Bad Cop movies because that was like, it was so alien to people to the white public, I should say. And that's the biggest thing. That's like, uh, and it's interesting. I, I like the way, yeah. yeah, they almost handled it. Like they were treated almost like the shark. Like there was different music that came on when they were, when they were in the scenes. And um, it was interesting. I also, it was interesting was one of the cops was, was not white. Yeah. He's like kind of uh, Latino to center. And they played into that as well. And we talked about like, there's like, there's also the scene where they're almost burning down the Korean store and the Koreans are like, we're like you, we're like you. And it just that idea of like, um, of otherness and like what it's like, they're not white, but they're different enough to be considered other. Um, but the other, the one thing I'll just say this fascinated with history, also somewhat fascinated with New York history. 
Um, the Irish, the Irish were able to integrate a little quicker, but there was a ton of prior to the. If this movie were made a couple of years before, it'd be the Irish Italian tension. There was a ton of tension there, and like that's a big. They joke about it on Friends, but Joey's Italian grandmother from Brooklyn hates the Irish. That's not an uncommon thing. Irish and Italians don't like each other, and it's like for the same reasons. This, they're people in a small community, or excuse me, big communities in small proximities, like small geographic areas, competing for the same jobs. Also, this does this does a great job of showing like Mookie is dating the Puerto Rican, Sal's interested in the black and the black girl Jade. When you put people together, it's like the whole Re- Romeo Juliet thing. There's yeah. nothing quite like two young people to break down those barriers, like if they're attracted to each other, but it's going to lead to tension. And the more people you have, like, there's just going to be, con- the more people you put around each other, the more tension there's going to be. And the easiest way to divide each other is, oh, you're white, you're black, you're Italian, you're Irish. But where I'm going with this is um, the Irish were able to integrate a little quicker, just where Italians could be profiled, dark skin, dark hair, especially like right off the boat, like Sicilian, like they do look. Or Italian, like they could be easily identified, especially if you're looking at all the wasps. Um, but so there, and like even talking about the Sopranos, like I'm not Italian American, but the Italian America, whether from coming in with the Irish, then to like now, like the 50s, the mob, like they've had their own unique experience. I'm not comparing it in any way to the African American experience or any of the other experiences, but the Italian experience also feels like very tied to New York. Now having been in like Boston for a while and being able to travel around like to the Midwest recently, like there are Italian communities there, but like Italy, like I feel like in the Northeast, like there's a very strong, dense Italian yeah. like identity. I'm losing myself here again. I'm not Italian. So I'm probably... there, it's a specific, I mean, yeah, the, I think that Northeast, especially the New York Italian, it's a specific culture at this point yeah from like like philly Philly up through connecticut like that's like those are italians like not that you can't be italian anywhere else but like there's you drive through um there's some cities in connecticut like in new haven there's a famous pizza place and there's still like signs up for the italian neighborhood for the czech neighborhood i just feel like it was again i'm losing myself yeah i mean you know i I even think like some of the characters like mookie himself in this movie is kind of a contradictory character it's like is he this hardworking guy that's trying to take care of his wife and his kid? Or is he this guy that kind of like will slack off for hours at a time and ditch his job and take a shower and try to make out with his girlfriend? Like, you know, the whole idea, you know, I think that the, one of the central questions of the movie, you know, I mean, the movie's called Do the Right Thing. And it's like, is Mookie this moral character? Does he do the right things? Or is he this person, you know, that plays into the stereotypes? And like, is it, you know, was it the right move to throw that garbage can into the thing? and kind of create this this uprising against Sal's Pizza and kind of turn the community against it. I've also heard this theory that, like, he throws the garbage can in there so that they don't attack Sal and his sons. And then it's like they actually send all the violence onto the store. And in that respect, he kind of, like, salvages Sal and his sons from the physical violence. Because it does kind of feel like they're about to beat up Sal when they take away Radio Raheem. But then when he throws the garbage can through the window, it's like, oh, no, let's just, let's just take out their store. That's so I've heard this theory where it's like he's kind of saving them in that respect. I, I haven't considered that. I can see that. It's, so it's interesting when it's so funny. And like as the movie was happening, there'd be a lot of scenes where like in the scene, I'd be like bugging out's out of line. Or I'd say Sal. Most of the time, Pino was out of line. If Pino said half the shit, yeah. like Pino, and I'm sorry for having Pino alone in there, like for some of the stuff he said, like 
the N bombs alone, I won't even acknowledge that because the Italians are dropping it all over the place without any 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 problems. Yeah, so all that like Italian slang, you know, the boulangian, all that kind of stuff. It's like those are dirty words too, you know, just because you say them in Italian. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not nice in any language, but um, the uh, it I can see that with Mookie. See, I think at the end of the day, what I think Jade was the most like the most horrible. And if she is saying, "Oh, she was on Mookie's ass the whole time," so for I think if the question is, was Mookie moral? The thing's no, because Jade was yelling at him the whole time. And the other thing I would say, and and but this is the question where it's like, I really like, and I'm not criticizing it. Sal took care of Mookie, and it's. Right. So, like, Mookie has a kid. Mookie is putting food on his table with Sal. But it's burned down. He's not going to work there again. How is he now paying to support his family? And, like, yeah, and he says he's going to get another job. If he gets another job, that's good. But, like, where I'm coming from is, like, if he even misses a dollar, like, if he if he misses a week of pay, that was a bad move. It was a bad move from a strictly yeah, like- business standpoint. And yeah, if you think about it from like just his family and his personal life, I totally agree with you. It's like you can't do that to you. You just had a kid, you know, you're in this burgeoning family or whatever. You need to put food on the table. You can't wreck your job that way. But the, I think the other argument to that though is like for that neighborhood and for that culture, uh, especially the black people there, they needed some kind of retaliation for what happened to Radio Raheem. It was like they just could not, you, you couldn't let one of your innocent, you know, brothers die. Uh, you know, on the streets like that and not have some kind of retort. And I think that's the whole, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X aspect to it, where it's like, we can't just sit here and be peaceful when you're killing our people like that. And so he had, he felt like he had to respond, I think. And so on the cultural sense, I do think the response was like necessary, like something had to be done. I don't know that they needed to burn down the store, but it's like, he felt like he had to take action and that was the action that was taken. And so but then I the question is, was it aimed at the right person? If, like we talked about, that was that was one of the that was right. the oldest restaurant in the community. You took down, right. and it's yeah, it's a white thing, but but I, I, it's just. I, I mean, yeah, the cops are the ones that really killed him. You know, I agree, but it's like he can't also really Sal was almost killed. Him. If the cops didn't come, Sal could have been killed. That's true. I mean, again, yeah. How many more people would have been? No, I'm not saying that, but like, how many more people would have been hurt if Sal had been killed? It's uh. But that's the beauty of it's a well-written movie, and it's I get why Radio Raheem was upset. I get why all of them were upset. Like it's it's also just me that, that like that he chose Radio Raheem to be the one to die. I do think that like you could have had Bugging Out be that person because he's really the one that's stirring up like let's boycott Sal's and like he's the one that's kind of more upset about it. I think Radio Raheem just kind of jumps on at the end. I like that though because like we've all been in fights. The guy who yeah. starts the fight never gets the brunt of it. And yeah. the reason I think they chose Radio Raheem was because he was a proud, like a very proud, like walking in places blasting. He's like, I'm Radio Raheem. Like he was a proud man. Like he was not scared of who he was. He was also very strong, physically imposing. Yeah. And the way I took it was it's like, this is this guy. Literally, you need 30 men to hold him back. But then it takes two cops and they yeah. kill him in a matter of minutes. And it's like, I may have been misreading it, but I took it as, they can take out the strongest person in your community like that. Like it's not a matter of strength when it comes to systems. 
or like that type of power because nobody else would mess with Raheem. I don't want to get lost in it, but um, that's why I thought they chose Raheem because also he was like the loudest, like his music is heard the whole time. And it's, I don't even know. Maybe, I don't know if they stopped playing any background music once he died, but that's kind of occurring to me. But I, I like that. That sounds terrible. I not that I like the choice that he died, but I like the choice of that character dying. Um, I agree. He's he's one. He's like kind of the most soulful of them, and he, he's very representative of the community. And yeah, it's just like you feel so bad when he dies. It's just like he did not deserve the fate that he got. And it's like I think that's a big thing for Spike too, where it's like this guy didn't deserve this. It, it, he just kind of ended up being the victim of this situation. And it's just it's a. <laughs> It's really, it's a sad end. I'm, I'm happy that he didn't do a Hollywood ending or anything because it's like that wouldn't leave you with the feeling the viewer should be left with. You know? The viewer needs to be left with this feeling like we need to fix what's happening in these societies here. No, and it's so. I do have a question for you about the philosophy about like talking about like the fixing it. So I, I appreciate the juxtaposition of Malcolm X. And Martin Luther King Jr. Not to bring it to comic books like I normally do, but like I don't think he does. I think this is not like a real question of exploring the differences. I think he's more kind of just lining them up one against the other. Like one of the things I left the movie with was it was it's occurred to me some of his other films, like it's more so shining a light at a problem as opposed to answering the question. I don't expect him to answer the question to racial uh, racial tension in a movie. But at the same time, I think he could have chosen one quote or done something to thread the two. Um, and the reason I brought up X-Men is Professor Xavier is the pacifist. Magneto is the is Malcolm X, um, who was the, believes in defense. Um, but where I'm coming at from this is, and you see both of those threads in this film. And it's hard. Like, obviously, it's hard. We're not where we want to be. But my problem is, what act of violence do we ever point to and say, wow, that really changed the world for the better? Um, Outside, but then again, I say that. You know, I say that and I take that back because the non-aggression tendencies, it was acts of violence, but it was watching white men blast women and children with hoses set dogs on people in their Sunday's finest. Like it, it's the act of being the victim, like violence against the victim. When you see that, I think that's more powerful. Um, and the reason I'm saying that it's easy for me to say that with, with my background. And I know I probably fit all the uh, snowflake barometers, like check marks. Um, but, but, you need to be willing to defend yourself. And if you can't defend yourself, no one will respect you. I do believe like any community, you need to have some level of like defense or at least just to be able to garner respect. Um, and what that means in, in a legal society, like it's not like a thousand years ago where you just need some spears and arrows. I don't know what can, what defines, um, it's probably money. You probably need some type of money or backing or legal standing, but um I agree. Like, I, I think you're right. Like, I don't think he's necessarily trying to answer the questions of, of, like, you know, cultural racism or anything, but he's shining a giant light on what's happening. And I think that was, like, pretty important. Like, you know, he ends the movie on those two quotes, you know, basically 
And I agree with both quotes, honestly. You know, Martin Luther King is basically saying, you know, violence beget, begets violence. And once you go down that path, it's this descending spiral into into violent behavior. And, it, and both sides are left blind, you know, an eye for an eye leaves both sides blind. And that's a really true statement. And I also think the Malcolm X quote about like, you know, if, if you're protecting yourself and you're defending yourself, I don't consider that violence. Like I consider that intelligence. And like, if you're getting beaten up, by all means, defend yourself. You know, whether it's whether you're getting beaten up culturally or, or verbally, or, or whether you're getting beaten up physically, I think it's a smart move to defend yourself at all times. I don't think it's smart to just take the beating and turn the other cheek because I don't think that solves anything either. And so, you know, neither 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 one of those points is like a hundred percent right. But it's like you know, I think both of them are valid. And I just think it's like. Like you said, you have to shine a light on these things and start to understand them before you can kind of like dissect them. I, I, my under my feeling with Spike is that he's just trying to say we need more understanding of each other at the very least. And it's like if I have to show, you know, if I have to bring out all the epithets and show how we we treat each other, that's what I'll do. But at the very beginning, we have to at least understand where we're all coming from. I agree. I mean, as a white man in his 30s i've kind of come to the realization that it's gonna require a lot more of uncomfortableness for people in power yes. if we're going to create more comfort for people without it whether you want to look at that as a racial divide a monetary divide something a mix between the two it's um but i think spike does a good job of putting those questions forward i i think spike does a good job of putting those things forward I, it's a and again, it's like you can't really point to a movie before this that's like really attacking these issues the way he is, you know, in the inner city and stuff like that. And so, and you know, also it's like you can't really point to a lot of like black directors with you know big black casts that you know that no one really had the power to do this kind of stuff. And so it's like I think that's you know that in itself is also just kind of a big deal. I just because you brought it up, I need to talk about the cast for a minute. I am sorry, I was. The first 50 minutes, every time someone walks on screen, I'm like, oh, like we we got the main cast, Spike Lee, Danny Aiello, John Turturro, but you got Ozzy Davis, Giancarlo Esposito, Bill Nunn, who's Radio Raheem, who I, you might not know him, but you'll recognize him from a ton of things like that. John, I mentioned John Turturro already. You got Rosie Perez, Martin Lawrence, Samuel Jackson. Like it's just was... Yeah. Incredible. Like uh, it was, and then there are a bunch of other people who you'll, oh, Frankie Faison. Like there are a bunch of other people you'll recognize. It was awesome. Like I really, like, it was an incredible cast. And not all of them, well, no, you know, Martin Lawrence and Sam Jackson are not well known actors at this point. You know, a lot of those, you know, bit parts he kind of fills with people that bloom into bigger actors. And yeah, it's just like phenomenal cast. Um, I know some of the casting what ups out there too. It's like, I mentioned De Niro was, was supposed to be the Ayala part. I know Lawrence Fishburne was considered for the Radio Raheem part. I think that would have been an interesting choice. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, one of those. Ca- yeah, and I mean, I mean Giancarlo Esposito. <laughs> you know, it's like thirty years later, he turns into this huge character on Breaking Bad. I don't know which performance is more well known now, but uh, just love. I mean, he's almost a completely different actor when he's older. I mean, you watch him as bugging out. He's like this brash, boastful guy. Starting, you know, getting in people's face if they just step on a sneaker, and then to have for him to have this kind of like subtle villain role in Breaking Bad, it's like talk about a transformation just in terms of his acting. Pretty incredible career. 
Yeah, it was. I didn't recognize him at first. I was like, "Who is?" And then as the movie went on, I was like, "That's that's him. Like that. That's Giancarlo Esposito. Like it was. Uh, it, it was. He had a bigger role than I realized too. Um, I also like how they use like the nicknames. Like it really helped give it more of like a neighborhood yeah. vibe. Like whether it's bugging out, mother, sister, Demare. I liked it. I mean, it was cool. My my favorite of those is uh, Sweet Dick Willie. I, mean, I love that. I love that. Those three guys were great. I what I meant to ask you. Did Tarantino borrow some of his like dialogue techniques from this? Like the idea of those, like especially those three, like Sweet Dick Willie and those guys. Like some of their conversations, like I just some of the aspects, like talking about we you talked before about the Pino Mookie conversation about how these racist white people love all this black culture and how what's really interesting at that time in a very racist country. No, not as racist as the '60s, but 1980s U.S. is still pretty racist. Black people were at the top echelons of pretty much all the entertainment industries and still are, mind you. Like, it just creates a very interesting dichotomy. Um, but I, I was, I really thought this is one of the best written uh, films of his, just in terms of the dialogue and like that, like the ability, whether you're like dealing with the actual like narrative push of the film or in these side conversations that are still like resonant within the overall theme and like building to it it was just really really well written yeah no i have no doubt i mean tarantino clearly heavily influenced by the black exploitation movement in film and so i have no doubt he saw these early spike lee movies and that had a big effect on his dialogue writing as well and so i definitely think you know i mean reservoir dogs comes out in 91 which is only a couple years after this and so again i know that Tarantino was hugely influenced by uh, especially those black exploitation films but any black filmmaker not to say that he's like you know, I mean, Tarantino has a lot of influences, but you can see the black exploitation influence on in a lot of his movies. And I do think, you know, I think some of this dialogue, you can hear it kind of ring out and some of that, like, especially Reservoir Dogs, I think the way that they're kind of talking about cops and, and black people and just the, the, the racial undertones in that movie, I think definitely come out there as well. And yeah, I read those cornermen, I think great characters, what, the, what they talk about is also really interesting. You know, I think one of them is always like, you know, you know, I see these Koreans open up this this business, and it's like, why can't black people open up businesses in our neighborhoods? And it's like they they kind of have this back and forth about like, oh, the white men is keeping us down, and this and, that. and it's like, no, we, there shouldn't be any excuses. Like, someone should just open up a business. And it's like it's a really good topic. It's like, yeah, why don't we have our own businesses in our own neighborhoods? Like, why is it Sal's in this Korean, you know, uh, thrift shop basically? And it's like, why can't we open our own stuff? And it's like, just you know, just them kind of asking that. You know, again, it's like. We're just asking the questionnaire, like, why isn't it happening? And it's like, yeah, that's a good point. And it's like, they don't really have the answer to it. They kind of kick some stuff around. But yeah, I love I love all three of those characters. And it's like, they're almost kind of like this weird Greek chorus type of people inside of the movie. I, I also think Sam Jackson just a great job in terms of being like this kind of musical DJ narrator. And he kind of breaks up a lot of segments of the movie with different songs. And he kind of does different monologues throughout it again a lot of that distancing effect and so just great yeah not not only like it's like all the characters are archetypes but they don't fall into stereotypes and that's a hard line to kind of walk where it's like you could yeah any of these characters kind of turn into stereotypical ones including the white people and stuff but to keep them you know it's like oh you're this type of person but you realize it's not a stereotype it's like it's a full breathing character that is like you know you can relate to them in, in an actual reality or society. And so uh, again, that's a really difficult line to walk that I think Spike kind of does a good job of. 
I like that. Yeah, the archetype versus uh, stereotype. Um, right. One of the last notes, actually, before, not that we're ending or anything, but I just realized, like, talking about talking about that, I love Mookie was dating Rosie Perez. He had, like, a half black, half Puerto Rican son, I believe. And there's a conversation where he's, like, yelling at her for speaking in Spanish. He's like, or, or, yeah, she's like, oh, yeah, he's like, no, I think he's mad at the mom. He's like, English, English, I want my son to learn English. Yeah, he says it's bad enough his name is Hector. And again, it's just more of that, it's racial tension, and it's, I mean, yeah. it, it was, it was, it. but then at the same time, it wasn't lost on me that here you have this African man whose kid is speaking English because 100 years ago, fucking English came and took, or some some English person at one point, like, um, it, it's, it's history is heavy and history is deep. And I, what I, what I like about this film is I think I mentioned before the South park approach. It's like, if everyone's racist, if you're racist to everyone, you're racist to no one. Um, not that I believe that. I don't believe that in real life. I think when you're telling a story, it's, it's a helpful way to kind of dodge some of the, the bumps in the road. But um, what I really like about this film is, I like just I'm a big history buff too, and there's a lot. I feel like a lot of people want to rewrite history or try and like soften the some of the edges to our history. But it's what I like most about this film is that it shines a light on each of the races, but in a way that like I think exposes things, but doesn't shame. Like like whether it's talking about some of like whether it's an African American those African American guys. I'm wondering why there's a Korean shop and not that. And like, there, there, it's enough. It maybe it's that balance we said where there's enough balance going around where it kind of like everyone is touched on. So it's like you, you're each showing a freckle or a burst spot. So like no one feels ashamed, but I just, the way he handles it, the way he handled it's really well. And I just really like the tone of the film. Um, it's actually, I think probably my favorite Spike Lee film. <laughs> like not uh, it's a, I've always kind of considered it his best film. I do think 25th Hour is like kind of in that conversation. Also a big fan of Inside Man, but yeah. this one just really hits hard and, and on like all the topics that he's really kind of like trying to attack throughout his like filmography and stuff. And I also, you know, even stuff when it comes to like, just like the jerseys that people are wearing, you know, just like say a lot. It's like, you know, Mookie's walking around in a Jackie Robinson jersey. One of those other kids is wearing a Magic Johnson jersey. There's the guy that, you know, the white guy that walks around in the Larry Bird jersey. And fucking, I was like, "Why don't you move back to Massachusetts?" It's it. like I'm born in Brooklyn, and they all get pissed off about it. And it's just like, I just love that he incorporate, you know, even the stuff about, you know, him and uh, one of the brothers have an argument about like who's better between Doc Gooden and Roger Clemens. Mm-hmm. And I just love that he like ties in the sports aspect too, because it's like that's a big part of culture, and it's like it says something about you in terms of like which athletes you root for, which teams you root for, and like why you root for them, and like. I just love that he kind of, you know, it's pretty subtle, the, the sports, the sporting aspect to it, but it's still there. It's like the, those guys are wearing those jerseys throughout the movie. They kind of have these sports arguments peppered in there. And I just love that he kind of brings that in as well. I just want to say quickly, the real villain was the dude who scuffed the Nikes. He was a jerk. <laughs> the white guy. He was a jerk. He bumped yeah. into him. And like that was uh, that was the only thing that happened to bugging out all day out that I think was like, 
he wasn't it's asking like, for. Like all he did was step on his shoe, though. You know, it's like we, we can't get through the day without stepping on somebody's shoe. No, but I mean, he was walking on a New York street with his head down, carrying a bike on him. Like that guy could have had his head up. That I'll just say, uh, as a someone who walked in New York for ten years, that's not that's not good etiquette. That's not good etiquette. And also, yeah, I just love like how valuable Michael Jordan's sneakers were back then. You know, it's such a big deal to them that he scuffed up his Jordans and it's like, you're right. It's just like, you know, that's a, that's a really valuable thing for that character. And for the white guy, it's like, what? just step on your foot. Like, what's the big deal? And it's like, even that's almost kind of a metaphor between the two races where it's like, he didn't just step on his foot. Like those are his fucking Jordans. Like he paid over a hundred dollars for him. It's probably the most expensive thing he's wearing today. You know, like Raheem with the radio. Like it's that, like, there's a lot of like that, that's his thing. That's more than just the material to that. Like that's part of their, not identity, but like that's a part of their identity. Like it's a part of what they're putting out there. Their costume, their their and by costume, I mean like you want to call it like their outfit, their armor. Like that's a part of their identity. Like you can't right. And, yeah, it, go, it goes from you know that guy stepping on fucking out Jordans to Sal basically bashing the radio with the bat. And you know it's like I think both of those are kind of metaphors. Actually, now that we're talking about that, I, I think that's an interesting. I think that's like a really like we're talking about like systemic racism or just like and it's like that idea like for the white guys well you'll just get another one and it's like yeah. to to Sal it's like just a radio he busted a radio but like I mean we saw no, Raheem like earlier it. like yeah. it's, it takes batteries to put in there you need tapes to put in there like that's like it's more like it's it, not I, I I don't mean to make light of it but just like saying it's like um I guess we talked about race a lot it's also somewhat economic like that it might be easy for Sal to replace, as you said, that other white guy can buy a new pair of shoes. Sal can probably buy himself a new radio thing, but like, it might be harder for Radio Raheem or Bugging Out to replace those items. And that's where some of the tension's coming from too, that misunderstanding. Right. Yeah, and they just don't understand how valuable, beyond the price, just how valuable it is to their identities, where it's like, yeah, these are my Jordans. Like, I want to represent that. Or like, this is my boombox. I want to play my music wherever I go. Like, if you destroy that, you're destroying a part of me. And it's like, yeah, you know, you you understand why Brady Rahim and Bugging Out get so pissed off about those things. And it's like, I think the white people are a little, like, miffed about it. <laughs> the, yeah. And, like, the thing that stood out to me, there, there's the scene where Rahim and Bugging Out are talking. And the earlier scene where Rahim walks in, and I also, it's interesting the way they film it. Like, they film him to be intimidating. Like, they film him, like, up close, and he's looking down at the camera, and he's yelling, and there's the music going, but he's not a violent guy. Like he's not like, I know he attacks uh, Sal, but up until that point, he's just like, I'm not going to call him a gentle giant. Cause he does almost rip the guy's head off, but he's a big guy. He doesn't necessarily mean yeah. bad. And it's uh, like the thing. He has that moment with like the, the, the Latino characters where they have their stereo going and he yeah. comes in and he raises his volume and you feel like there's kind of an escalation, but then they kind of just let him go. And you're like, okay, that's okay. Like you guys have a little musical battle there, and but he just walked off, you know? Where I was going with that, where I lost my train of thought was Raheem later on when talking to Bugging Out mentions that he didn't say, please turn down the radio. And it's like, oh, that right. was one of the things that stuck with me where, yeah, he he knew he was gonna have to turn off his radio, but like he just wanted to respect. Uh, I think I came back to his respect. Like Pino feels like he's not respected by his dad, so he's lashing out at all the black people. Vito seems like the only one who's cool with everything. 
but his brother Vito Pino can't let him live. But um, especially when it comes to guys, I feel like it's mostly about just wanting to feel like respected as like a guy, like as a man. Like, I, I, yeah, like I also think there's like this interesting thing going on where like at one point bugging out, you know, he gets kicked out of the store when he's talking about the pictures that there's no black people, and then you know Spike kind of has to escort him out, and then he looks at Spike and he's like, "Hey, stay black." And Spike's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like, I'm going to stay black. But, like, that's basically the same thing that Vito's – or that Pino's trying to say to his brother. Like, I mean, he doesn't really say stay white. But he's trying to kind of tell him, like, hey, don't listen to Mookie. Like, don't listen to that stuff he's telling you. Like, I'm your brother. You listen to me. And I think there's, like, a similarity there. And it's, like, instead of saying, like, stay black or, like, just listen to me, it's, like, we need to, like, listen to each other. And we need to, like, cross the boundaries. And it's, like – you can't just stay in your group and listen to your own bubble. Like you got to listen to both sides. I think. I couldn't agree more. And it's, I'm just, I'm like, I, was the movie uplifting? Was it depressing? Or is it like neutral? Like I'm, right. I don't know. The, I don't know. I'm, I'm like, obviously when I can, I mean, it, it hits all of those notes, I think. And that's why it's such like, it, like, you know, you can view it from a bunch of different lenses. I mean, you can view it as this really sad movie. You can view it as like this uplifting movie where this, you know, these people kind of realize things about their uh, about their neighbors and their culture and stuff. Uh, I mean, uh, I, again, I think it hits all of those notes. Like you said, though, most I think it's just kind of shining a big spotlight on the underlying feelings of, of all these people that live so tightly together. Yeah, and you know, the whole idea of just like a hot day in New York. You know, that's always. One of my favorite settings is just like it always kind of turns up the tensions a little bit. And uh, yeah, I also like the fact that it's like it's one of these one day movies. Um, and so, you know, it's not like one of these things that takes place over, you know, it's like it goes from like a normal summer day into like basically a riot by the end of the night kind of thing. And it's just, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I just love all, all the different kind of areas it hits and all the things that it forces the viewer to think about. Yeah, no, it's. Really strong movie. Uh, there's not much to dislike. Although I did have one question slash gripe for you. Okay. I agree with everything you said. And I think from like a bird's eye point of view, like the bigger, like the larger themes, really strong. The movie itself, incredibly strong. This is more of like a nitpick even than a question. It's okay. Didn't we love the Mookie Jade dynamic it felt more like a boyfriend girlfriend i'm not saying i think spike lee wrote it the way he wanted to but just something about the relationship kept sounding like it was more of like that's a romantic relationship she was she was on him about money and like being a man and taking care of his business and like that just to me like everything about it felt more and even his like defensiveness of her and protectiveness of her with sal it just felt to me, it felt honestly a little creepy. I don't think that's what he was going for, but I just, I don't think that relationship worked really well. I know that the first time I saw it, I was confused because the first scene is him kind of like playing with her lips on the bed or whatever. And I thought that they were like a couple and then it took me a while to realize that they were like brother and sister. I know that's also played by his real life sister. And so I think there's a little bit going on there where he's he's actually trying to portray their real life kind of brother-sister relationship. But I, I actually think that character... Um, I don't want to call her a Mary Sue uh, in terms of uh, Ray and Star Wars and all that, but she's a little bit of a Mary Sue where it's like she can do no wrong. I think he presents her a little too angelically kind of thing. And it's like she's one of the few characters I actually think that isn't as dynamic as the other ones where it's like 
most of the other characters, you can be like, wow, they, they're really, you know, too, you know, saying some like horrible stuff on, on this end, but they're also making some good points over here. She's one of the few characters where it's like, you kind of presented her as like, you know, uh, again, like the most moralistic character in the movie, you know, she's down for doing something good in the society. She never really says what that is, but like, she's not down for violence and like, Again, I, I just think she's not as dynamic as a character as some of the other ones are. Yeah, she's she's a bit thin at the end. My my my, my actually the, the part I might have edited a little bit more um, is the whole mother sister Demare relationship. I'm not as interested in those. I think Demare's a, a good character, but I didn't really care about him like winning over mother sister with the flowers and trying to get on her good side. I didn't think that was that. <laughs> interesting of a thing oh i like that I, I i hear what you're saying i thought it was sweet it was i thought it was one of the few like uplifting things in the uh i mean that's true and i also nice just like i just like that like looking at that in its own like uh vacuum he was like yeah. he like he was asking for free beer all the time but he did like the money he did have he was more than happy to spend on her i just thought it was one of the few like i guess it was the only real happy ending in, in the film or uh the only real positive thing but I mean, the way I looked at it too, it's like you can, it's a terrible world, but people still find love, like in strange places. I guess I, I just didn't feel like, you know, the Demare character, it's like he starts his day, he can't get his Miller High Life and he has to drink a different beer. And then, like, he's, he's drinking in front of Mother's sister's place and she gets all pissed off at him. And it's like, I didn't feel like he transitioned from, like, you know, I feel like he's going to wake up the next day and drink his beer in the morning. And I, I just felt like he was the same guy. You know, I mean, he does. You know, he saves a kid at one point. He does some good things. He makes up with mother's sister. Like, if anyone had a good day, it was probably the Demare, because it's like, you know, I felt like he did some good things in the neighborhood, but I still felt like he's gonna wake up the next day and you know start drinking again. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean he's not gonna have a better day than he did before. And of everyone we saw, I think he's most likely outside of Jade to have a better day than he did before. That's assuming yeah. she doesn't dump his ass. <laughs> But we'll see. No, but yeah, no, it's, I do think this would have been, I think at a hundred, I think at an hour, 45 minutes, this movie would have been a little better. Like it, it doesn't drag, but it does like around the, I, I'm not going to edit it now. It's obviously, a, I think it's entered in the national Congress library. It's, it's a piece of art. It's beautiful. Uh, but yeah, it, I like that story, but if, I guess there was one that wasn't truly int integral to, to everything. That would probably be it. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, there's definitely elements of it. It feels more like a play a lot of times than it does a movie at some yeah. points. I agree with that. It almost, yeah. It almost feels like it's being done on a I mean, I think it was done on a real Brooklyn block where they filmed it, but there are times where the set just almost feels like you're on like a, a stage play or something. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I was wondering where they filmed it. I was like, it it could be a great set in LA, or, or but it also could be a, a Brooklyn, like a, a Brooklyn. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure they used a, 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 like a block in Brooklyn to film at least most of the exterior scenes. Uh, I'm sure like the stuff on, on the interiors, they probably just did on like sound stages or something. But I believe um, that. I, knowing Spike, I feel like he 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 do Brooklyn. Yeah. Question for you: Are we ready for final scores, or is there anything else you want to touch on? I think I've unloaded my plate here. Yeah, I don't know what else you got left. No, I'm good. I'm good. I think I'm ready for for final scores. I'm I'm gonna give mine a bit of a bump here. I, I can go first. I feel like I always ask you to go first. You can go for it. I'm gonna give this. I'm gonna give it like an eight point five out of ten. 
Um, I was initially like in the high sevens, but then I realized um, as we were talking about it, like a lot watching this film now, it's a 7.5, but knowing it came out 30 years ago and how, again, not, not teaching us something new, but showing what was actually going on in communities of color at that time. Um, we still don't have enough of that voice. We still don't have enough insight into what's going on. So um, for me, it's 8.5 out of 10. It, it is, and it's a compelling movie about race and justice. And I guess that's like the only way to describe it. It's heavy. It's not, I'm not dying to rewatch it again, but I'll see it again. Like I'm, it was good. I liked it a little heavier than normal, I think for 8.5 out of 10, but it was good. I think, again, we are in similar places here. I think I'm coming in at like an 8.7. It's almost, for me, it's like almost one of the great, great movies. It's like not quite there. For a, I think there's like a few performances that could be a little better. Again, I don't know that Aiello is the best performance in the movie, even though he's the one that got most critically recognized. Um, I really like the Totoro performance. Um, I like Spike's performance for the most part. Um, I do like. I think it's like a hair away from being like one of the true great movies. It's not unassailable, you know. Like you said, like I think there's some things you can kind of nitpick at, but overall, the thematics of the movie. And the techniques he's using. I mean, the fact that he's like, he's evoking Bertolt Brecht, uh, you know, in like a 1980s movie and, and using it in terms of race theory instead of political theory, I think was like some ingenious stuff. And uh, yeah, I don't, I, I think also the influence of the movie, now that it has been 30 years, I mean, what, you know, we talked about Tarantino. I also think guys like Brian Cooler heavily, heavily influenced by Spike Lee. And so, the fact that he kind of opened up doors for black directors, you know, not just black actors, which clearly, you know, he has this huge cast of actors that went on to be successful after this movie, but also just opening the door for black storytellers and black directors. And like that alone, somebody needed to kick that door down. I mean, it's 1989 at this point, you know, the fact that we've had basically, you know, 70 years of cinema history and we really haven't had a prominent black, you know, director or storyteller truly was was need like direly needed at that point in time and so the fact that he kind of kicks that door down and it does it so heavy-handedly and like has the balls to make this movie that doesn't follow a hollywood script and kind of like goes out of you know outside of bounds in terms of like you know just how it's made the t techniques it's used to made and the points it's trying to make um again just like historically an extremely important movie and also just like i mean I, I do think it's an entertaining movie in its own right, just beyond all the stuff that we've talked about. Like, it's not it's not boring. I mean, yeah, there's a couple points that, you know, kind of slows down, but it's interesting. The dialogue is interesting. The characters are fun, you know? It's a, it's a lively, vibrant community that it's, like, representing. And it's, like, at no point would you call it, like, a boring movie or something, you know, some, like, period piece that's, like, you know, drab to, like, deal. It's just, like, it's an entertaining movie, and it's culturally relevant. And, again, a, a tough line to thread. Ton of I always like to use. I just think of a narrative momentum. Like there's just each scene that's like you're you're you want to get to the next scene. Each scene has something in it. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's it's good. He did 8. good. Eight point five and eight point seven. Those are some higher scores uh, from us. I think high scores. I like it. It's. I'm still just like processing the film. It, it was it was good. And yeah, to your point, it's you can have the larger philo race philosophy questions, 
or you can just look at it in a, in a microcosm and just wonder about that pizza shop. Should Mookie have thrown the garbage? Like, is that, did he save them? Did he destroy the store? It's, it's great. And we always talk about levels and like this, all of Spike's films, I think 25th hour might, it's probably still my favorite just because for given the proximity to 9-11, like when we saw that, seeing that with you and Dave and like all of our friends, like something about that film really resonates like deep within me. Inside Man. 9-11. Yeah. 9-11 that film are, are pretty powerful yeah and, and I, do, I, I do think that's like for me it's those two for spike where it's like that's really his highest level of filmmaking and then like inside man's a fun movie <laughs> um yeah and i'm sorry you mentioned before with spike uh the one thing about spike i sometimes criticize spike i think sometimes he can be a little again as a white man who am i to say I think sometimes I think he's misguided, yeah. and or at least or a bit didactic at, at times. That's that's probably a better response. I shouldn't say that. That's probably a better response. But at the same time, I watched this film, and I think back and like I, I I knew who Spike Lee was before I saw this film. I knew who Spike Lee was before I saw any Spike Lee film. And the average right. and growing up, and my parents, I don't think are, I think they're just two normal parents. They didn't hate Spike Lee. And I don't even know if I heard about him from Spike Lee, but I I always thought of Spike Lee as like this angry black director, even as like a young kid. And I don't know if that came from, probably came from the Zeitgeist. I don't think my parents were watching him. Yeah, no, I think in, in culture, that's kind of how he's portrayed. It's like, I'm this angry guy, you know, I'm going to attack, you know, racial dynamics and stuff. And I watch this now and this is such, there's nothing angry about this. Like there's anger, but it's not an angry film. Like this is a true film. Right. And I just think, I feel like Spike Lee has been paying for being honest. Like they say, don't shoot the messenger. He he delivered the first message. We had plenty before, but to the modern audience, he delivered the message 30 years ago and he's been punished for it ever since. Like, And by punished, I mean by not being rewarded for his work. Like we talked about it. 25th Hour and good and the Inside Man are two of the best films I think in the last 20 years. Like they have not been properly recognized in my opinion that's a whole other conversation he's starting to get some recognition recognition with black Klansmen, but uh it's funny i watching this i feel like i just got the origin story of a character i've known about for like 30 years and i'm like finally got the origin story and i'm like oh it makes sense i'm like spike lee's not angry he's just honest like he was just he was just exactly. he and was I, just banging like the walls it. i think he was unfairly portrayed uh, like you said kind of in the zeitgeist and just really i mean do you think about the academy to not recognize this movie for what it was and to recognize a movie like Driving Miss Daisy, it's just like, it's such a miss by them. And it's, I, again, you know, I, I think it's it's actually more relevant that it didn't get even nominated for Best Picture and the fact that it was just like completely snubbed. And it's like, it shows you like, yes, people were still racist at that point, you know, white people controlled the Academy and they were upset about what he was saying. And it's like, that kind of proved his point in a way. Like if it had one Best Picture, Maybe we don't remember it as well. And so the fact that it kind of did get that snub, I think, it'll always be remembered as things like, wow, he made this huge point and they just couldn't acknowledge it. Like the white people at the Academy just could not acknowledge what he was doing. It's, I mean, you just, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It, it, that, if that movie had won the Academy Award, then they would almost defeat the purpose of having to make that movie. But it, right. I, where I put this movie is this movie gets put in a smaller bucket of movies that were the best film at the time and history has proven them to be 
the best film of their year. <laughs> so yeah, we just uh, sorry, Sus, throwing it to you. Yeah, it, it's one of those movies where it's like because it wasn't recognized, it actually becomes more recognizable. And I, there's a couple of Kubrick movies that are like that that were just so poignant that they, they just couldn't. <laughs> I don't think people could understand what they really were at the time that they were made. And so again, a totally different type of movie than what like a Kubrick would make or something like that. But as time has gone on, it has been proven like this was an extremely important movie especially for the time that it was made. And so, you know, there's a reason why it's in the National Film Registry and all this stuff, you know. I, I think it has slowly gained the recognition it deserves, but it's still just super interesting to me that they, at that time, they just couldn't acknowledge what it was. It's coming out of it, knowing that out of that film, Danny Aiello got an Academy Award nomination and Spike Lee got a reputation for being angry. Like, right. that's all you, like... And I'm oversimplifying, but that that's what came out of that film. And I'm just a part of me is heartbroken that like that's the world I grew up in. But not not playing the violin for me as a white man here at all. But at the same time, it's also like I doubt it feels like progress for Spike. But it's got one of the other things they mentioned, they kept mentioning Black Panther in this film. And that I loved it. They oh, yeah. I just have to a part of me was like Again, not waving the victory flag, mission accomplished flag here over in uh, White Manville, but like, I ha- I would love to. I I would like to talk to Spike, and I would just be curious to know if if he felt. Not saying there's as much progress as we need or as he would like, but I'm curious to see if he thinks there's like real progress in Hollywood or just like tokenism. Like it's like, and when I say that, I mean like Marvel's just like we'll make one black hero. I would really love to have a conversation with him about Marvel in general, but about the superhero comic books and everything. So, I mean, I, I agree. I would love to have that comment with him. I do know when Black Klansman was up for Best Picture and then it lost to that, um, what was that movie with Viggo Mortensen where he's like uh, driving around. That was, I wanted to say, that was the, mo- that, they could, that was like uh, the, the modern day Mistazy. Like there was a real, yeah, there was a, it. it's like, it was, a movie about race. And he walked, he just, he just sprinted out of the awards. So he was so pissed off that, that that was the movie that won. He just felt like, I know in that moment he felt like there wasn't a lot of progress and that they had just awarded another Miss Daisy. And it's kind of like, I hear that. I also believe that he would think there has been, you know, the movies that Coogler has made and, and, you know, the the success that the Black Panther movie had. I mean, you got to think there has been some type of progress. That movie wouldn't have existed in the 80s, you know? I will say, if you want to talk about progress alone, the progress is he got nominated. The film got nominated. It wasn't even nominated in the 90s. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, uh, you know, Black Klansman, not my favorite movie. I don't think it deserved to win Best Picture, but I don't think that uh, Viggo Mortensen movie needed to, to win Best Picture either. I think they could have gone with a different movie that year, but it's just like, there was something very ironic about that movie winning, you know, 20 plus years later. I've never, I haven't seen the Viggo Mortensen movie. It, it just doesn't hold that much appeal to me. But I will say this, I did see Black Klansman. It was not the best movie of the year. It was a good yeah, movie. Yeah. It was not the yeah. best movie of the year, but at the same time, I can't imagine. I can't imagine what it's like. Yet at the same time, I think I can understand. You made a movie about race as a black man, and yet the movie made about race by a white man, which is almost a carbon copy of Driving Miss Daisy, the film that you lost to thirty years before. Like to lose to the same film thirty years apart with films like by white men like i do if you could see yeah, me on screen right now i am frustrated for spike lee 
that would drive me absolutely nuts. Like, I, I don't care about like, I'm talking about individual, like the pure talk, good selfish yeah. here. Like you're, you're a man, you made this movie. Like this is, you're, you're selfish for your work of art. It's okay to be that selfish and be angry that you lost to, you, you 30 years apart. You made two good films on, on topics about race. And yet you lost to white guys making basically like friendlier films with less edge. So I, I totally get where his frustration comes from. And I will say, I have a lot more sympathy for Spike Lee now than I did having seen this film previously, realizing that I think a lot of his, um, again, sometimes he is, I'm not saying he comes off as an quote unquote angry black man. I do think sometimes he comes off as more like, more. it's more emotional critique than like real critique to me. And, and sometimes I sometimes I feel like with him he beats the drum a little too much and like you know you know you gotta I think for a lot of directors you gotta change up things you know I like people that you know have different tastes and so there are, I think there are some movies with him where it's like yeah you've covered this topic enough you know it's like you've done this and I'm not saying it's like race is never gonna be a tired topic or anything like that but it's like at the same time you know you can't just keep making the same points over and over again I guess I agree I the one thing I'll say to that I couldn't agree more and it's interesting because we are in a country in a very turbulent time of terms of like transition and change but I, this is the one thing if I'm going to be a real critic of Spike Lee this is the one thing I would say the U.S. in 1990 is different than the U.S. in 2020 we did have a black president like there was a black president I'm not saying we, that didn't fix anything that didn't fix everything by any means. But this is a country, predominant, a predominantly white democracy chose a black person to be their president for eight years. I don't know what that means. I'm not the artist here, but I'm saying like, now, whether it's changing or in transition, his message, like uh, to your point, you're actually, you're talking about racial messages and the country is responding, whether to you or just in general, like, the message should be shifting at some point. Like, I'm not saying the message goes to the mission accomplished, George Bush banner, we did it, racism's dead. What I'm saying is, like, I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm a white guy, as we've discussed many times. I don't understand a lot of the nuances, but I like hearing from Spike Lee and I like hearing from these artists because that's how I learn. Like, that's the only. I need their insight. So for me, and I'm not telling him to change his point of view, but what I am saying is, as a fan of his work, I I will say this, looking at it critically. You can't use the same lens in 2020 as 1990. There's still racism, but there, and I'm not saying there's more or less, but again, I know a lot of people, like there are more people, people are different. They've changed in 30 years. Like that, yeah, that's yeah, all I'm like, saying. You know, even I was watching the movie and I was just kind of thinking to myself, like, you know, even this block in Brooklyn, you know, it's kind of depicted as, as this slum back then, but it's like now those are million plus dollar brownstones, you know, it's like that whole community has been gentrified. The economics of it have totally, you know, if you try to set this movie today on that same block, it's a totally different. Sal's is a Starbucks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just like the, the money has, has completely changed those, those types of neighborhoods, uh, especially in Brooklyn. And so I, you know, again, you're right. It's like no one's saying racism has died or, or has been fixed, but the culture has changed over the last 30 years and the economics have changed a ton over the last 30 years. And so, yeah, I mean, I think at that point in time, he had a very specific viewpoint. He had grown up in those neighborhoods. They hadn't changed too much from when he had grown up. And so I think he was able to like show a very realistic picture of like what was going on that the majority of white people had no idea about, you know, they would just say that was the ghetto and that way, you know, you would just drive through, you wouldn't think twice about it. But like, 
for him to show all that stuff to white people, I think, was the huge bridge. I mean, to just create that connection. You just said a buzzword for me, ghetto. Like I remember being like a young kid. I knew what ghettos were. I didn't know anything about anything, but I knew what ghettos were. Like, and it, it's um, yeah, it, it's it's really it's really it's like a flashback in time for anyone who wasn't alive during the '90s. I'm sorry for it was like the '80s, except like the cocaine was a little mod- modified, so people weren't so. It was like uh, less pastels, a little more productivity, but uh, at the same time. Like the '90s when the wall fell, just to look at like it, it felt like oh, it's the golden age, quote unquote, yeah. for white people. And then it's like oh, well, once the communists were gone, guess what? We can start focusing on ourselves, and that's why like it's now, and in a good way, we've been able to focus on ourselves for thirty years. And I, feel, I feel like this. Uh, Tom Hanks said it best in Saturday Night Live. As a country, we're like the teenager. We're we're, we're going through some changes right now. Like, if you look at us from, like, an actual take-a-step-back historical point of view, we're still young. We're going through some changes. It's going to be rough. Who didn't remember hating their face and a couple pimples on it? There's going to – we're working through it, though, people. It's um, – the one thing I, I do think, though, it's uh, – I know this film was pretty purposefully, like, kind of trying to thread that needle. Like, not really optimistic, not really pessimistic. But I'm just naturally an optimist, and I still, like, whether it's me imposing my optimist will upon this film, I still leave it with a with a, with a hint of optimism. Just because the way I look at it is it's ultimately, I'm looking at, I think Sal, I liked the last exchange between Sal and Mookie. It wasn't clean, it wasn't pretty, but I didn't get the feeling that Sal hated Mookie. And I didn't get the feeling that Mookie hated Sal. And like, uh, I think this, I'm, this is probably more projection than conception or, or reception, but you can only make peace with your enemies. And the way I looked at it when Mookie, yeah, he gave him the extra 500. Yeah. Yeah. He was being a jerk, but Mookie gave it back. And like that whole thing, like there's some interesting politics there, but like ultimately like it wasn't a happy ending, but they right. left, like they, they left each other alone and like that he kind of makes a good point too about the money where he's like sal you know how it's gonna go you're gonna get the insurance money and it's like that's true and sal goes into this whole thing well i built this place with my own hands every light socket and it's like yeah but you're getting that insurance money you're gonna be okay but that's where it comes in it's the respect like talk again respect sal for him it was he lived every day that was his temple for mookie And again, this also goes on the money thing. Like when it was smashing the radio or scuffing the Nikes, like I think to Mookie's point of view, it's like, it's not about money. You're going to get the money. And like, but to Sal, it's like, well, it's about respect. And then Mookie's like, respect? Like you want to talk about respect? Like it's just that thing. And then it goes back and forth. And it's um, that's not, it's like, it is this escalation. Like it starts with the scuffed Nikes, then it smashes the radio. And then it's like Sal loses his shot. And it's like, yeah, that meant something to you. Just like the shoes meant something to bugging out, and just like the radio meant something to Raheem, and it's like all of them take it personally. It's not the money; it's that personal respect. Seth, you just my mind was just blown. Anyone could see me. You literally uh, that stupid white man over here, gorilla lizard, my being me, Jake. My lizard brain finally put it together. Um, Wow. Yeah, that, that, it is. I just made that connection too, where it's like it escalates from those th- those through those three things, but it's like it's only the last one that matters to, to Sal. 
Oh, and we just talked about the identity too. Like that, you literally just blew my fucking brain. That store was it Sal's equivalent of Raheem's radio. Right. Wow. Okay. I am like mind blown. I'm happy we got there. It took us a while, but we got there, Jake. <laughs> a couple of college degrees, a couple of high school educations, and we were able to get there. Okay. This film. I, I like it. And also, okay. I, this, I love this film even more. It also makes me love that last exchange even more, too. Because Sal's alive. Radio Raheem's not alive. Also, who knows what's happening to Bugging Out. Sal's alive. Sal's getting his money back. Like, it's, it, it isn't, wow. It's not, it, wow. That now that we're talking about, that's not a correlating. They each lost something, yet Sal's the only one who's walking away whole. Right, yeah. He'll get his insurance money. He'll be okay. His family will be okay. Bugging Out's in jail. He was a smart young kid that going to prison like that at that point could completely redirect, you know, where he's going in life. Raheem has no life left. You know, it's like that guy, his life ended that night over, you know, a fight about pictures on the wall and a radio being played loud. And it's like completely undeserved fates for both of those characters. And Sal walks away, you know, you're upset that you lost your, you know, your shop got beat up, but your life's not over. You're not going to jail. You're still going to have your money. You know, totally true. And it's a, yeah, I mean, like, I, and that was the thing I kept being like in the moment, like, and he does a great job of crafting that. I remember like Greater Raheem's being so obnoxious with the radio, but at the end of the day, he died. Like, no, he could play that at a million, even if he burst some, some boons, port eardrums, you don't deserve to die for blasting a radio. And then if, obviously, that, that goes without saying over here, but like, it's just like the in- it's the unfairness of it all and like just the it, imbalance. It's just so imbalanced. Yeah. Like the action yeah. and consequence and wow. No wonder this movie is in the National Archive. <laughs> like it's, uh, this is something, this is one the aliens will have to watch a couple times and try and understand what the hell we were all so worked up about. Yeah, I've got, yeah I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy we, we finally completed that thread on the, on the connection there because that is a. That ain't even my bump in my score a little bit because I, I hadn't fully put that together either. But I think I'm going to give mine a full nine. I think I'm going to give mine the nine bump. Oh, a full nine. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'll just go right there with you, Jake. We'll end on nines. Ooh, a couple nines. The first time we've rescored a movie, I think. Post post scores. It is, there. guys. You saw it happen. This happened while you were while you were watching and listening. That's why it's all you got to do is talk about these films, and you, you never know what's going to happen. Might make a connection like that. Hey, that's how you t- that's how you learn about each other too, Seth. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and that is a happy ending now. That, that there. <laughs> Look at that. The white guys figured it out. Yeah, we did. Hey, who knew? We had the answer all along. Hey, we break it. Maybe we can fix it. <laughs> I, I'm just happy I can understand it a little bit more. You know, it's like I understand the movie a little bit more than I did before. I also I have to say now that I fully understand now with that logic in, in place, I'm going to watch the movie again soon. I know I said I wouldn't, but now I want to watch it again because I feel like there's so much more, I bet there's more correlations like that. So I want to watch it again and be like, right. Oh, yeah. all right, Seth, yeah. I'm going to have to let you go. You're, you're chewing my ear off here. Should we, should we wrap it up? I'm ready. It was fun. This was a good one. This was a, this was a great one. It was a learning one. Anytime we learn something, Jake, I'm, I'm just happy. <laughs> Spike, you're still doing it. 30 years later, you're still teaching us something new. Yeah, we're still learning from you, Spike. 
And also, just so you know, Spike, when we put this, we're going to do, we we are going to do this podcast soon, Seth. The Oscars that should have won. Oh, yes. yes. We'll do that soon. This also, is... Whenever Spike listens to this, I just want to let him know, I appreciate you still sitting courtside. You sat there throughout all the dark years of the Knicks games. A true fan of the end. I, I watched all the dark years. I still see you courtside. I appreciate that commitment, Spike. Spike, <laughs> the best thing about you is your Knicks fandom. And I, I love you as a director. I had until I started watching his movies. I didn't like under appreciate who he was. You know, it's so funny. I that was a, he's such like a larger than life character. I knew him from the Knicks, and I just knew that people thought he was angry, but he's so much more than that. He's an artiste. Yeah, great artist. Respect, Spike. We love you, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.